All right. Welcome, everyone, to He's Done It, a mostly sports podcast. I'm Corn Avant, and I'm joined today, as always, by my co-host, Brian Wells. We have a packed episode for you today, starting with NFL Week 9 recap and reactions. Uh, we'll have a somewhat abbreviated version of that segment compared to previous episodes. We'll only be focusing on a few games, including Brian's Patriots, my Steelers and Antonio Brown's Buccaneers. That's right. We'll be talking all about uh, their move to bring him in, in addition to their lopsided loss on Sunday night to their division rival, New Orleans Saints. We'll have some baseball discussion as the offseason is underway. And in recent weeks, there have been three noteworthy managerial hires all with their fair share of controversy we'll give our thoughts on each of those we also will be talking the masters it is masters week in november and even though there won't be any fans on the grounds at augusta national golf club it will certainly be an exciting weekend uh, we'll preview give our picks for that one and a few other topics that we'll get to at the end of the show uh, before closing out with our top five war heroes in honor of Veterans Day. So, with that, let's get started. are back brian it's been a few weeks since our last episode Uh, certainly a lot has happened in the sports world during that time we'll try to focus on more of the recent stuff we definitely have some content that is you know maybe a week or two older we could have talked about sooner Uh, regardless let's get into it and let's start off with nfl week nine reactions and Let's uh let's start off with the New Orleans Saints and Tampa Bay Buccaneers Sunday night football game. The Saints destroy the Bucs 38-3, their second victory over Tampa this season. Bucs were riding high coming into this one, and uh, they certainly fell flat in a game that feels like it's extremely important and uh, not one that you want to lose by five touchdowns. So I guess focusing on it from the, the Bucks perspective starting out, do you think that there's reasons to maybe slow the brakes on Tampa or this is just an anomaly? I would say I'd, I definitely have concerns with Tampa. I mean, I, I feel like it's every week where one week they're killing it and they look like they're a Super Bowl contender and then the next week they're the laughing stock of the NFL and they definitely have not performed very well versus the Saints losing two of their three losses have come against the New Orleans Saints and they were clearly out coached in that game and yeah it was pretty brutal for a Buck standpoint especially defensively because they're known as one of the best defensive teams in the league and they just gave up 38 points. It doesn't matter who it's to. I know the Saints are great, but 38 points and as one of the better defenses in the league, that's definitely not a 
good performance, especially in prime time. When you evaluate the the Buccaneers, it feels like every single week something is changing. But this is the kind of game where you're going to point to a team and say, how good are you? When you're at home in prime time against your top division rival, a game in which the winner is either going to uh, gain control of the NFC South in New Orleans case or in Tampa's case, gain an even larger lead, split the season series, and to come out and fall flat like that, 38-3, to I think that's just a pathetic performance. And Tom Brady didn't play very well. And he's no, had a he, few he had games one of his... this season where he's been awesome, but this was a really bad performance from him. And Yeah, he had it... one of his worst games of his, not just Buck's career, entire career. And it was the largest deficit of his entire career. Previously, his largest one was uh, 31-0 shutout uh, against Buffalo early in his career, but now he lost by five touchdowns. And yeah, he... The first interception was pretty on bad luck, tipping off the few uh, New Orleans def- defensive linemen. But on a screen pass, this, not not a yep. play that typically results in an interception. But yes, and then and then the other ones it was just miscommunication with Brown, and then the last one was just <laughs> the, one of the worst passes I've ever uh, seen. Yeah, that, the last one where you just tried to chuck it up to Gronk on fourth down definitely looked like uh, like a. Pop Warner type pass from like a 12 year old quarterback who's about to get murdered because his his 12 year old offensive lineman can't block for him. Uh, but yeah, it, it was a really bad performance from Brady. 22 for 38, 209 yards, three interceptions, didn't throw a touchdown. His passer rating 40.4, QBR 3.8. I don't know the last time I saw QBR that low. On the flip side, Drew Brees. There have been a lot of talks about him being washed and. You know, his passing yards per attempt is still kind of low in this one. He was below seven, but he threw four touchdown passes and no picks. And he was very much outplaying Brady in this one. And now when you look at the uh, the total touchdown standings, Breeze has a three-touchdown lead because of this performance. Uh, so that's just another factor that, that goes into this rivalry here this season. I'm, I'm, I'm sure if, if Breeze does retire after the season, I'm sure Brady can just catch him in a few games next season if, if Brady is playing after this season I'm, I'm assuming he would and not only was Drew Brees great uh, in terms of touchdowns he also distributed the ball pretty well he, he he threw it to 12 different receivers well 11 different receivers and Taysom Hill whatever position <laughs> he plays yeah but he, he spread it out the ball at the 12 different players on the on on the Saints so that's pretty efficient football yeah, there have been a lot of talks this season about Drew Brees and, you know, if he's washed, if he's fallen off, if the Saints are still a Super Bowl contender like we've considered them the past few seasons. And he might not have the, the deep ball in his arsenal still, but he's completing passes, uh, and that's something that we've been known to see from him over the years. That hasn't changed. He's still helping New Orleans score points, and the Saints have won five in a row. So, uh, right now, it's, the Saints feel like they're really in the driver's it's, seat. In this the Saints division. are the Saints are the favorites in the NFC, in my opinion. But it's the same thing all the time, where it, they could be as great as they are in the regular season, but once it gets to the playoffs, that's when we have concerns. It does feel like the NFC playoff field is changing rapidly every single week, whether it's. 
Seattle on top, Green Bay on top, New Orleans now on top. Chicago was a one seed not too long ago. They've lost three in a row ever since then. Tampa has been floating around this discussion. Now, if they're finished second in the division, they're going to end up as a wild card, have to go on the road. So that's just another reason why this game is so huge. And I, I think I agree with you about the Saints being the best team in the NFC right now, maybe like the inside track to the one seed. But it just it feels like every team has so many flaws in this conference that, you know, these these games like Sunday night are really going to be crucial uh, whenever you're, you're facing one of these top opponents just to see what, you know, what we can expect. I mean, I mean, look at the rest of the. Look at the rest of the NFC in terms of the best teams. The Seahawks are definitely up there, but they've got one of the worst secondaries in in all of football. And then we look at the Packers. They're definitely good, and they will very likely win their, the, the NFC North, but they also gave up all those rushing yards to Dalvin Cook, and they did not look good in that game whatsoever. They all, it's like what you said, they all have their pretty pretty big flaws no matter who the team is yeah we've seen all these teams be dominant we've seen all of them struggle if you focus on the box they blew out the Packers but and they, they also blew out the Raiders great offensive performances before that they lost to the Bears in prime time on the road and they almost lost to the Giants on Monday Night Football so whenever the Bucs have been on the biggest stage in front of the national audience we haven't seen a whole lot of good from them it's really just the green bay game of course the saints game uh, from week one yeah, that was gr- a 425 times both slot. of those were four o'clock games but still the, both are pretty they're big spots so the packers one was the only only game where they really showed up in terms of the four o'clock or later window and that was a game where they scored 38 points they had a pick six they almost had two and uh tom brady he he did enough to win, but he wasn't putting up huge numbers offensively in that one. Uh, we've really only seen a handful of huge games from Brady, and his top receivers, Mike Evans and Chris Godwin, they've had their own fair share of uh, disappointing performances. In this one, Mike Evans wound up being the team's leading receiver with 64 yards and four catches, and that's not necessarily what was expected when Tom Brady showed up in Tampa and was given these weapons of Mike Evans and Chris Godwin to go along with Rob Ronkowski, Ronald Jones, LaShawn McCoy, Leonard Fournette, and now Antonio Brown, which brings us to Tampa signing the mercurial wide receiver uh, just as he was getting ready to finish his eight game suspension to start the season. So, He sat out those eight weeks, and Tampa brought him in, and they were able to play him in week nine. He didn't do a whole lot in this one. Three catches for 31 yards. Uh, One of Brady's interceptions was intended for Antonio Brown, and there was another pass that Brown had to play defense on to prevent another interception. Uh, But I guess just looking at it from, you know, it it was, is this... (laughs) a move that makes sense for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Uh, the only way it makes sense is if Evans and or Godwin get seriously injured, but otherwise I I'm mostly against it. I mean, he was with the Patriots for that 10-day span and I I don't get a lot of things right, but I felt I I, I felt a little justice seeing Antonio Brown not 
perform well not perform but not last uh as long as he, he would have liked or anyone would have liked in New England and I was not a fan of the signing then and now even for a different team I'm still not a fan of it. I'm not a fan of Antonio Brown I think he's a he's a he's an idiot and uh I'm sure at some point there'll be uh chaos with Antonio Brown whether that's an on the field thing or an off the field thing I it's he's a ticking time bomb I'm I'm not a fan of the guy what that's the best way I can put it. So if you focus on this move from just a pure football perspective, I think it makes sense for Tampa. And one thing you mentioned, uh, you know, if Chris Godwin or Mike Evans, if they're injured, you like to have that security. And while I don't think Evans has missed a game this season, he's definitely battled God- through some injuries. And Chris Godwin has. Yeah, he's only Godwin's played five missed- of the nine games. Yeah, he's missed several games. Yeah, and he only played, I think he played Green Bay and Vegas back-to-back. That's the only time they've had him two straight weeks this season. So... Right there, uh, Bruce Arians had made this as part of the justification of uh, the signing of Antonio Brown that him and GM Jason Licht were like, hey, you know, we're losing these receivers. They're they're not healthy. We're not getting the production we need out of them. Gronk has stepped up a little recently, but he's been a no-show in plenty of games. So it makes sense. When you have all this talent, you bring in a 43-year-old quarterback, Tom Brady, you're really all in on this season. You you can't mess around with this. So you have Antonio Brown, who uh, by pretty much anyone can agree is one of the greatest wide receivers ever to play the game in terms of his talent. Uh, by all accounts, he's one of the hardest working receivers in the league, someone who's put in a ton of work to be as awesome as he's been, uh, as great yeah, as Mike he was Tomlin, in Pittsburgh. Mike- Mike Tomlin has said that repeatedly, even with the with the stuff he has off the field. He's he's said multiple times that he was the hardest, one of the hardest workers uh, on the Steelers when he was there. And the the Bucks, you know, Bruce Arians and company have said that they were surprised just how football ready Antonio Brown was, given that he hadn't played in a game in over a year. So just looking at it from a football perspective, I think it makes a ton of sense, but. You don't just sign a guy of Antonio Brown's talent off the street if you can focus on it just from a football perspective. And that's where you get into this gray area with Antonio Brown. And, of course, I think the, the big thing that does need to be discussed is that there is an open investigation against which, him. Which Bruce Arians has said that if, the, those, that they, if they were to investigate and find out that what Antonio Brown is accused of was actually did happen then he would be gone yeah and you know when you have to say that out front that should certainly set off a few alarms in your head but beyond that we've seen all these off the field things in Oakland that he had you know showing up to training camp with frostbite because his cryogenic (laughs) foot procedure went wrong like him, I forgot about yeah, complaining about, that. about a helmet, threatening to retire because he couldn't wear a helmet that was deemed unsafe by the NFL. I All think he was just doing things. whatever. Yeah, to try I to get out of Oakland. What, out of Oakland specifically. I mean, I know he's crazy, but I think he did a lot of those things just to get out of Oakland. We saw, we saw the video when he got released. He was oh, I know, like I, a free I, bird. Yeah, I think it's I think it's fair to to say that. But you still saw when things went wrong, how crazy wrong they went. His lasting image in Pittsburgh was him on the sidelines in a you know big fancy winter coat as the Steelers are playing a game they have to win to have any chance of making the postseason. And 
in New England. Like you said, he only lasted 10 days. He has these accusations come out against him. He plays in a game. He plays well. And then in the week after the game, he's sending threatening text messages to one of his accusers. And there's all these little things that, that pile up and have just shown that, you know, maybe some guys don't deserve a second chance. And <laughs> now in this season, it's it's unlike anything because what happens when Antonio Brown misses a COVID testing? You know, he shows up late to something like that. He's not following these I kind of s- protocols. Like all these little things that are, could just easily start to pile up and you, you wouldn't even have to account for under normal circumstances. And there's a, like Bruce Arian says, hey, there's no guaranteed money here. He's on a short leash. It's a low risk signing. We can cut him at any time. Great. But we saw that Antonio Brown situation play out in New England and how Tom Brady did not want him to go when he left and things got really bad there and uh, it ended in a, a pretty bad breakup uh, between Brady can, and I, the, the yeah, Patriots. And, so, And I can see something similar hap- happening as well. I mean, I, th- I think Brady and Arians are already... There's kind of a rift there a little bit because we t- Arians called him out again week, this week. Yeah, after week one, he called he called out Brady for uh, the poor throw to Evans, and then this week he talked about how Evans was wide open on some plays, but he he kept forcing it to Brown, of course, since he for whatever reason just loves and t- loves Antonio Brown. Obviously, I'm sure it's for the his skill set and not as a person, and and yeah, I I I don't. There's a part. I've said this in week one, where part of me likes that Arians can call out whomever, even if it's the greatest quarterback ever. But at the same time, I mean, Tom Brady's had all all these accomplishments, and Bruce Arians has one playoff win. So I don't, I don't know if I love that idea either. Yeah, it definitely feels like Bruce Arians is playing with fire every time he does this, and. Brady, we've seen him bounce back for some of these bad performances this season and play great. So that's certainly something we could maybe see from him. Uh, the Bucks schedule gets pretty easier from here, but it feels like Antonio Brown is either going to help this team go really deep in the playoffs, maybe win a Super Bowl, or find some way to derail this season. And uh, if you're if you're a Bucks fan, you've you've got to be uh, cautiously optimistic about this signing. I think is what I'll say about it. Uh, as a Steelers fan, I loved Antonio Brown when he was in Pittsburgh. Not a fan of him after everything that that played out in the end, and I, I will not be afraid to say that I'm not rooting for him to succeed there. All right, uh, speaking of the Steelers, let's jump into them. Our next game, and Pittsburgh on Sunday went out on the road and they beat a team that you, Brian, said would go to the Super Bowl to start the season. So I mean, that awesome that was win, bef- right? Like a very <laughs> impressive victory. That's that's the only way to describe it, right? I mean, yeah, they they beat down the two and seven team with a historically bad defense on their fourth string quarterback. Yeah, they definitely won the Super Bowl. I, I appreciate yeah. you saying they they beat them down because it was fifteen to nothing in the fourth quarter, and that's what really counts, right? I mean, as a Patriots fan, yeah, I I definitely value the fourth quarter more than the other three quarters. So yeah. <laughs> I'm on the same page. Yeah, so the Steelers are 8-0, and uh, like most of their wins, it hasn't come easy. It hasn't been pretty. They play in their third straight road game after two down-to-the-wire finishes uh, that ended in wins over really good Tennessee Titans and Baltimore Ravens team. Uh, 
I think most Steelers fans weren't really surprised by this performance. Uh, I think some stat was like the Steelers were one in nine against the spread as a 10 point road favorite. And I think like five and four straight up. I think they're six and four straight up now. Yeah. And, and the Cowboys were the Cowboys were 0 and eight against the spread until this. True. Game. Yeah. This, this is the first one. They finally covered the spread. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's, it's just like. This has kind of been a staple of the Mike Tomlin tenure in Pittsburgh. And I've been a huge Mike Tomlin guy throughout his tenure. The ending of the 2018 season definitely left a sour taste in my mouth. But he's totally rebounded in the past season and a half. What he did last year after Ben Rossberger went down for the season, dealing with a ton of offensive injuries, a lot of uncertainty at quarterback between Mason Rudolph and Devlin Hodges. And then this year, leading the team to an 8-0 and start. It hasn't been pretty, but... He's won games. And when games happen like this and the Steelers lose them, which it looked like was going to happen, naturally that's going to get fans upset and say, we need to make changes. This is unacceptable. You can't lose this kind of game. So I think that all the fans who question, why would Steelers fans be anti-Tomlin? Like, why would they ever say he needs to be fired? This is the kind of performance that, uh, you know, stands out in Steelers fans' minds. So that being said, Looking at this team at eight and zero, you know we'll we'll talk about the COVID stuff because that could certainly change things. But I guess from from your outside perspective, how do you value this team's undefeated start, and where does it compare? I guess to just other teams in the league that maybe came in with higher expectations but have lost a game or two to this point. I mean, some of their wins in the beginning of the season uh, were not super impressive just because they were games that they should should have won and won handedly and they did but the last take out the Cowboys game because I know I know that was that was a good game or a good ending for the Steelers but the Cowboys are definitely not as great as I expected or other fans expected but the games before that uh week I think it was week seven versus Tennessee and week eight versus Baltimore those are now, Baltimore and Tennessee, they might be regressing a little bit, but they're both good teams, especially in the AFC. They're both and those, six and, and two. Both of the, yeah, and both of those games came on the road and came down to the wire where Tennessee, yes, the, Goskowski missed that bad field goal, but still a good win. And the Lamar Jackson had a couple really awful turnovers, but still the Steelers took advantage and they were able to get the defensive stop on uh, the last second of the game, as well as uh, this past Sunday against Dallas. So, I, I think those are I think those are good wins, and even if they look ugly, still pretty good teams that they've beaten. Yeah, I I think it's it's difficult to try to look at it because you want to look at it from the pessimistic perspective of all right, well we barely won this game against a bad team. What are we gonna do moving forward? But it's so much easier to uh, learn from a win than it is to learn from a loss. So these are games that in the past the Steelers have found ways to lose. And even though it comes down to the end, it's closer than you think it would be. Maybe if you bet on them you know, based on the spread, you didn't win money. The team still finds ways to win. So it's it's hard for me to look at it from a truly negative perspective when you're the last undefeated team in the league and you're snatching victory from the jaws of defeat, uh, which is certainly something that happened in this game against the Dallas Cowboys. So 
I guess the way that I'm looking at it is, yeah, the Steelers haven't been beating up on anybody. Nobody's going to say, oh, 8-0, like, is this like the, the 2007 Patriots? But the 49ers last season started 8-0, and a lot of people really questioned them just how good they were. And as the season went on, they lost a couple games against good teams, but they, they fought hard against them. They pulled off a few huge wins. They ended up as a one seed, and they ended up going to the Super Bowl. So, you know, you don't have to win pretty. You don't have to be like this loaded team like the Kansas City Chiefs on offense to be able to find ways to win in the NFL in 2020. So I'm, I'm trying to look at it from a positive perspective. Yeah, the Steelers have definitely looked good. Um, yeah, and they're... They haven't won these games pretty, like you said, and they're definitely not loaded like the Chiefs in terms of off- on the offensive side of the ball, but Claypool has been good. We saw James Washington have a good game as well, and Juju had a couple nice catches in that fourth quarter, and yeah, I think the Steelers are the second best team in the AFC. I, I, I don't see why, why Behind not. the Chiefs? Yeah, buying the Chiefs. Yeah, yeah and they're the best. They're the best team in football. I I agree yeah. with that still. I think based on you know the the roster, the talent, you know having Patrick Mahomes, that's that's still a difference maker, and that's they're they're deserving of that claim. But when people are putting out all these power rankings and stuff, or you know trying to say, oh, the Steelers, they, they barely beat the Cowboys, they barely beat this team and that, the Chiefs. So not only did they lose to the Raiders at home. They just lost to the Panthers or beat the Panthers this week by two points, thirty-three to thirty-one. They needed a missed field goal by Joey Sly at the end of the game. They it was a sixty-yarder. It, it was sixty-seven <laughs> yards. It would have been an NFL record, but still, it, it was that close. Uh, week two, they needed overtime to beat the Chargers. It's not like the Chiefs have been blowing away their opponents. Uh, they they played a Patriots defense and a Bills defense that are very good, and they slowed down that offense. So. You know, I, I, I agree with you. I think the Chiefs and the Steelers, if they play, could be a really great game. I'd probably give the edge to Kansas City. But this idea that Kansas City isn't having struggles of their own and that they're they're uh, blowing out every team. Oh, yeah, they, they haven't been perfect. Like you said, they it was a squeaker versus the Chargers. The, against the Patriots, they were lucky Cam didn't play. I mean, I'm not saying they, the Patriots would have won if they had Cam, but it certainly would have helped the Patriots. It would have been, yeah, and, it would have been better chances. So. Yeah, and... The Chiefs' defense definitely played well in that game uh, against Hoyer and Stidham. And then, yeah, the Buffalo game, that one looked ugly as well, but uh, they definitely established the run in that game. And, yeah, so, so yeah, from a Chiefs' standpoint, yeah, they some of their games haven't been uh, exactly pretty as well, but they, they're definitely taking care of business for the most part. Yeah, and I, you can say the same thing about the Steelers. So that's that's kind of the outlook we're trying to keep it on this. Uh, now, there, there are some complications to the Steelers season moving forward as uh, Vance McDonald tested positive for COVID-19. Ben Rossberger, among four players, identified as a high-risk close contact. Doesn't necessarily mean he has it. Doesn't mean he's going to miss Sunday's game. It, it could be like a Matthew Cincinnati Stafford Bengals. thing. Where... It could be. And when you throw in him having the lingering knee issue, like it, it feels like this could be a uh, a tough one. So they're know, not. Like so what are you saying? They're not going nineteen and no. <laughs> no, I I don't think so. I I don't know. Like so. I guess after the win over the Ravens to get to seven and zero, you kind of start looking ahead at the schedule and saying, "All right, they got they got Steelers two be an underdog got, in any of these games. They got two games versus Cincinnati, and I'm, I'd imagine they'd be touchdown favorites against against them. They got Depends the Jags, if who ben are Rosberg a joke. Or Mason Rudolph is playing this week. That's true. All right, so maybe 
that could be a closer game if Ben were to miss. And they got they also got the Jags. They got the football team, and they got the Browns again, who they certainly uh, killed in their first meeting. So uh, they might not go sixteen and zero, but they could go fourteen and two, maybe. They absolutely can. Uh, I, I think they're going to lose some of these games. I My thought was that Jacksonville would be a game they would lose because the Jaguars, for whatever reason, historically have the Steelers numbers, regardless of what the difference is between those two teams. Uh, you probably remember 2018 when yeah. the Jaguars were a joke and they <laughs> the Steelers needed a you know, a they got touchdown a, they got a run regular, by Ben Rosberger at the, they beat the them, buzzer. They beat them twice at Pittsburgh, once in the regular in season and then once yep. in the divisional round. But that was yeah. also when they had a loaded loaded defense as well. True. Uh, but, I mean, even just going back to the the early days when they were still uh, AFC Central rivals, Jacksonville has always had the Steelers number. Comp, you know, Add in the fact that it's a road game right before playing the Ravens on Thanksgiving night, uh, It that would be the kind of game where the That'd Steelers be a game that they look ahead even, too much. They would be practicing for Baltimore and not Jacksonville. Exactly, and that, that feels like a game that the Steelers could lose. And definitely still, like I would, would not be shocked at all if they were to lose that game even after Dallas the, being much closer, the, the Chiefs, uh, you know, the, getting a scare. The Chiefs' one loss to the Raiders that was sandwiched in between the games were the Patriots. Yes, they suck now, but... That's still a game where, hey, like the history between those two in the past mm-hmm. couple of years, that's a game that they still want to be pumped for. And then the game after the Raiders one was, I think it was the Bills. And yeah, there were talks about right that after. going to Thursday night, but then it got moved to Monday night the next week. And so those are two teams that you have more f- attention, more focus on than the Raiders, who are, yes, they're decent, but they're not great, but they certainly didn't take it. Adv- take much serious <laughs> take them much seriously Brian, as they wanted is, to and they lost what is the term for that term the Raiders for game or the Steelers Cowboys game what is the term for that when you you're looking ahead to another team you're focused on someone else you don't put as much uh, attention into your upcoming opponent what is it a trap game trap game and those happen to any team and the Steelers had a trap game against Dallas and they won it so Let's uh let's just focus on that. Let's hope that uh, everyone stays healthy in Pittsburgh and the winning streak lasts a little longer. All right. So finally, uh, let's let's wrap up our NFL segment by talking about your New England Patriots. And I'm just gonna come out and ask it right away. Are you happy or sad with Monday night's victory over the Jets? <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know because if they lost to the Jets yesterday, then I. I would have had, I would have been f- fine maybe with tanking, but see, I've been totally against the idea of tanking for the Patriots because even though they lost Tom Brady and several guys on defense this offseason, they're still uh, coming into the year. I know I said that they wouldn't make the playoffs, but it's not like the Patriots I thought would be trash by any means. I thought they'd be worse for sure, but and I want a meaningful season. I want to watch meaningful games, so I, I don't want to watch. I don't want to watch him tank, but if you're losing to the Jets by double digits going into the fourth quarter, then maybe they should. But it was a good good ending. It was a gutsy uh, ending for Cam Newton and Jacoby Myers and a few other guys. So, But it was still, it's still the Jets, though. <laughs> Part of me wants to celebrate it the way they won and came back and won that game, but it's still the Jets. I don't know how much stock I can put into that. 
<laughs> so I, I'm going to so be I'm, totally I'm, I'm, honest. I'm mixed yeah. on it. Is, is yeah, I, I think that's a fair reaction. Uh, you know, totally honest. I don't, I have not rooted for the Patriots very many times in my life. Almost every time has been because there are playoff implications that affect the Steelers. But I definitely found myself rooting for the Patriots on Monday because just all it takes is one image of a photoshopped uh, Trevor Lawrence yeah, in a Patriots I, jersey oh, I, to be like, oh, no, sent, no, they need to win this game. I sent that picture to several of my friends, including, including yeah. you. So. Yeah, that, that wasn't the only one I saw. I mean, even just like Patriots Twitter, just the, the accounts that I follow of you know friends or other podcasts, whoever – tweeting about embracing the tank and like oh yeah we want to lose this game all this stuff and I'm like all right well if patriots fans don't want to win then i'm gonna root for them to win because right, like exactly. you know that, that's just the mindset and I, at this point patriots are three and five the jets are zero and nine the jaguars are one and seven i feel pretty confident in saying that the patriots are not going to end up with the number one no, overall pick. definitely not now and it's, <laughs> probably if, not if, the number two pick either they, where justin fields even if they lost to the jets it still would have been tough because of how many bad teams there are not just the jets but the jags the nfc east <laughs> pretty much pretty much the entire <laughs> yeah, division I mean, the, uh, the, the Giants are two and seven. Washington's two and six. Houston's two and six. The Chargers are two and six. So there's there's uh, so there is definitely still ground to make up, even if they lost that game. But Cowboys two and seven. But yeah, yeah I, no, now, I, now that they won that game, I I now just want a meaningful season. And I, yeah, it's difficult though because if you look at the AFC standings, so you have. Uh, you know, your four division leaders with you know, Buffalo at seven and two, way ahead of the Patriots now, Pittsburgh and Baltimore in the AFC North, and then the, the Chiefs and the Titans. And then you have Miami, Cleveland, Vegas, and who am I missing? Uh, Miami, Cleveland, Vegas, and Indianapolis, all five and three. So the Patriots are three and five. They're two games back of them. And I think Denver's three and five as well. Uh, they might They might be. Two, three, and six. No, yeah, Denver's three and five, and Denver has a tiebreaker. Yeah, Denver New beat New England. So. Yeah, so the Patriots are like what twelfth or thirteenth in the AFC yeah, so at maybe, this point overall. So. Yeah, so if they lost that game, I I wouldn't have mind tanking, but now it's kind of too late because I mean now that they beat the Jets and they're three and five, they're looking at a if they keep this pace up, they're looking at the thirteenth overall pick, and then they'll trade out of the first round and pick up <laughs> pick up some thirteen. Di- I don't know. Uh, somewhere in that range, somewhere in yeah. the mid first round, or maybe even a little bit higher, maybe top ten. I don't know, but they they don't get Lawrence, of course. They don't get Fields. I'm assuming Fields would be not too far behind Lawrence. Yeah, number two probably. Yeah, and so they'll get a mid first round pick, and then they'll trade out and get multiple second rounders, and then Belichick will take some division two safety that no one's ever heard of. So he can prove that he's smarter than everyone else. He's playing chess while everyone's playing checkers. (laughs) It's I, I, this is the, this is the downfall of winning that game is that they'll get some middling pick in the first or middling picks in the draft. Yeah, no, I, I, I absolutely agree with that. And you know, at three and five, having a, a tough hill to climb. If you just look at their schedule, they play Baltimore this week on Sunday Night Football. Yeah. And they, they play at Houston, which is a game where it's like, all right, who really wants to win this one? And then the Cardinals, Chargers, Rams, Dolphins, Bills before week 17 showdown against the Jets. Uh, at that point, at that you know, point, it's already over. They, they, 
Yeah, and you know it's it's probably not going to be uh, in uh, New York's best interest to win that game. So that could maybe be the the one win that you know at that point they're it's already not, out it's of the not New York's, but it, it knocks the, them out with a it's top the, ten or whatever. It's not the Jets' best interest to win any game. They they were <laughs> they were up by I think it was ten in the fourth quarter at one point. And yeah, twenty seven seventeen. They were twelve. They've had twelve men on the field on a field goal. <laughs> if that doesn't tell you that they want to lose, then. <laughs> Yeah, that's like a, a Mike Vrabel type move where you know, Adam Gase pretends to be upset. But even then, it's like Adam Gase knows he's going to be fired. The only reason why he still has a job is so the Jets so can, they can get the keep losing and, and get the best yeah. guy. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so I you know it's it's one of those things where like if you're a Jets fan, it's got to be very frustrating. But at the same time, like you see the light at the end of the tunnel, assuming Trevor Lawrence comes out, and uh, you know it it would be. You know, I, I don't even want to say funny. I, I think I would feel more bad than anything else, uh, but uh, it's certainly something worth monitoring. And I guess at the same time, I can't even say funny because I hate Clemson and I don't want Trevor Lawrence back there. You know, I'd rather let that, uh you know, DJ guy. I keep still can't pronounce his last name. <laughs> no. Um, regardless, what do you think Trevor Lawrence should do? Like, do you think that it, it makes sense for him to go back to school to I, avoid I, going to the Jets? I, I would. <laughs> That is tough because the Jets and the Jags are very likely going to be one and two, and those both of those teams are truly bad. And I, I want to see just for the entertainment standpoint, I I kind of want to see uh, him pull a Elway or Eli and, and tell them that I'm not I'm not going to play for this team. Like trade me. So like come out, but then like but you but know, ask demand for, to but demand for a trade. I, I don't. I mean, someone that good would it be? Would it really be that smart to stay another season in college? If you're, I don't think so. At yeah, all. I don't think so either. Sam Bradford did that, and he got hurt. And you know, I don't know to what extent it actually affected his NFL career, but he definitely was never the guy he was supposed to be when the the Rams took him with the number one overall pick. Uh, Peyton Manning decided to go back to school when the Jets had the number one overall pick, so this would be the second time it happens to them where they miss out on a sure thing, can't miss quarterback. I personally think it's silly to say that Trevor Lawrence should uh, go back to school instead of play for the Jets. And look, I get that the Jets are a bit of a train wreck organization. They haven't had a whole lot of success in recent years. They haven't been to the playoffs since, what, 2010? But you're talking about New York City. Yeah, like, you're talking about New York City. and He's going to have the marketing. He's going to have the opportunity for the fame exactly. and all that extra money. Like, And if he's really like this amazing quarterback... He's going to have, you know, his own talent to be able to to pull the Jets in out of this, uh, you know, obscurity and mediocrity they found themselves in. And you will have a different coach by that. I'd imagine yeah. they'd fire Adam. You won't Gase. have Adam Gase. You'll right away be going into You'll, a better situation. Exactly. So yeah. I I think it'd be a great move. You know, it's also like. What happens if, uh, you know, they he goes back to school for another year and he goes to an organization that you don't even have New York to point to? Like, what happens if he goes to the Jaguars and then they move to London in two years and now all of a sudden he has to, to play in London? Like, is that really the situation you want to be in? Uh, I don't know much about Trevor Lawrence uh, personally, but I, I can't imagine that uh, that's more appealing than, than playing for the Jets. I'd rather, I'd rather I w- even though the Jets are the worst team this this year i i would still rather be in new york than in jacksonville slash london yeah so i i i think that he should come out um now before we uh move on i do want to throw this out there so sam darnold in this if if trevor lawrence goes number one sam darnold would no longer be a jet 
I don't really know what his trade value is. I can't imagine a team would give up a first round pick for him, but would, I do think it'd be that like a mid round market. Pick, I'd imagine. I think a second, and I heard a second and a fifth. I don't know if that was just someone throwing someone out there, if that's what the Jets are actually looking for potentially. But one team, I hate saying this, but a team that I have in mind that I think would make the move and I think makes a lot of sense to make the move, the Denver Broncos. And look, I'll admit, I was wrong about Drew Locke. He's not an MVP. I think Denver has a lot of weapons. Uh, You know, Von Miller going down for the season a couple weeks before it started definitely uh, hurt that uh, chance that, you know, I, I thought he had, but uh, you know, I think Sam Darnold, he's a big quarterback. He's a guy from uh, California. He's someone who I think John Elway would love. So I think that move's going to happen. And I'd, I'd like to see what he can do with, you know, Jerry Judy, KJ Hamler, Cortland Sutton, Noah Fant, and uh, see if, if he can really turn it around. And it's truly just Adam Gase and the Jets are the issue and not him. Th- those are definitely better weapons than he has in New York, but Vic Vangio is still the coach. I don't know if that's. A great, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. know that's if a great it's match. Be Fangio. I think that it's going to be someone else replacing him. Okay, um, so you know, just based on how Denver's played this season, I think they're going to go young, offensive guy, especially if they bring in someone like Darnold or just a different quarterback. I mean, Sam Darnold. Let's face it, he's he's sucked for a good, pretty much his what entire two or three year career now. I mean, except for Week One against the Lions, right when he killed it with his 160 passing yards or whatever it was. And, <laughs> And it was the Jets' defense just destroying the lines. But yeah, anyway, I think, I mean, I think Darnold sucks, but does he have up upside or potential? Yeah, I, I'd imagine being drafted number three overall. And if you set him up with a, a coach that has a clue and some more weapons around him, like you said, if it's Denver, he has Fant and Judy and and Ham, is it Hamler? KJ Hamler? Yeah, KJ Hamler. Yeah, yeah. I, it seems like a pretty good group there. So I can see Darnold being just even a little bit better than where he is right now because it can't get any worse for him. Yeah. All that being said, he has only thrown three touchdown passes this season. Joe Flacco threw three, threw three touchdown passes yeah, was that, alone wait, against wait, the Patriots wait, defense. So. Wait, Joe, was that Joe Flacco or Joe Montana out there? Cause I yeah, hey, I, he passed him on the all-time list, right? Yeah, he's, he's officially better than uh, – He's that makes Joe Flacco the second-greatest quarterback of all time, right? Passing Joe Montana? <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right, let's uh, let, let's move on at that, and let's talk some baseball. So uh, you know the Dodgers won the World Series, beat the Rays in six games. Both of you and I predicted that it was two weeks ago tonight at the time of recording. So uh, we're not really going to discuss too much of that. We really should have tried to record an episode sooner if we wanted to. Um, so that being said, let's uh, let's talk some managerial hires, and uh, there've been three in the the last uh, you know week or two that have been extremely noteworthy and let's start with our Boston Red Sox who are welcoming back Alex Cora who was uh, the manager in 2018 when the Red Sox won 108 games and won the World Series uh, as well as in 2019 when things weren't quite as good and then uh, ultimately was fired in the offseason after investigation into the Houston Astros uh, put him pretty much front and center as uh, one of the guys behind that team's sign-stealing scandal. So that being said, what do you think about the Red Sox decision to bring back Cora as manager? I mean, it's obvious what Cora did with Houston and possibly Boston. Definitely wasn't smart and and regretful on Alex Cora's part and cost him a season. But 
I, I'm fine with the move. He's certainly the best candidate that was out there for for the Red Sox. The all the people that they brought up as a potential candidate for the managerial job made no sense. And I think Heim Bloom didn't even want Cora back, or I think he wanted Sam Fold, the a f- former player for the Rays, and he seems like New Hampshire resident. Wow. Or- at least from New Hampshire. I don't know if he lives there anymore, but yeah, yeah, local kid. Did not know that, but cool fun fact. But yeah, I think he wanted Sam Fold, and I think he got over overmatched by John Henry and the rest of the ownership, and and they decided to go with Cora, and I'm definitely fine with the move. You, I think Red Sox fans need uh, – they, they want to have a manager that they really – know and really can relate to a little bit uh, they don't want some random faceless guy and ron ranicky or just some random guy random jag that wouldn't make a difference i i know core what he did was bad but i think he really got the most out of the players especially in 2018 i i don't think it's a coincidence that guys like devers uh best seasons were when cora was 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 here and being as the manager and guys like bogarts as well and eduardo and so on I think he gets the most out of the team. So I'm I'm totally fine with the move, even though he's probably a dirtbag. So when the uh, the Astros news first came out um, earlier in the year, back in January, we were talking about it. And I said that I thought that Cora and you know some of the other members of the Houston staff were scapegoated. Because Rob Manfred did everything in his power to protect the players. And it seemed like, you know, based on the report, it was very much a player driven scheme and you know i guess cora was close enough to it that it was easy to say he was the mastermind when uh you know i I think that based on what we've heard about aj hinch and jeff lunau and cora you know carlos beltran that you know maybe they they had awareness they had some involvement in it but they weren't the ringleaders it was a player driven thing uh so from that perspective i really think that cora you know getting a one season band is is enough punishment for yeah for what he did i also agree um you know i think that if you're not going to suspend the players at all you're not going to punish them at all you're gonna put them in a position where they can go to the american league championship series and be a win away from the world series <laughs> then you know i'm not gonna sit here and say that cora should be banned from baseball uh so i guess from there just focusing on it on a purely boston red sox move uh i i was kind of indifferent throughout this whole process about whether or not cora came back obviously cora was a huge part of that World Series team, uh, very instrumental in the Red Sox winning 108 regular season games and uh, you know ultimately winning the World Series. Things weren't as great in 2019, though. Uh, I think the roster was not quite as good. I you know, dealt with injuries a lot more, uh, you know, a lot more issues there. Um, but it was to the point where I was like, all right, is this kind of entering John Farrell territory where you win a World Series in the first year? And then you, you know, just suck the, rest of, the, the yeah, rest of your tenure? Yeah totally fall off uh that being said this was a really tough year for red sox fans in 2020 from trading mookie bets in the offseason and uh you know having the the whole pitching staff go down with injuries to you know you know ultimately the dodgers won the world series mookie bets plays a huge part of that could very easily win national league mvp uh i think that bringing back core is kind of a feel-good move that a lot of Red Sox fans are going to be like, all right, I don't hate you as much anymore. I'm excited to see where we go from here. So from that perspective, I like the move. You got to bring some back, some of the buzz back to to Boston and baseball. Yep. 
And uh, I think that's that's a big thing. You're and not gonna you're not gonna bring back Buzz for the Red Sox if you hire Sam Fold or who whatever the other candidates were on that list. I didn't even so, bother yeah, to check. Sam, I I did look it up. Yeah, Sam Fold is he's from Durham, New Hampshire. So that's where UNH is. He wound up going to Stanford for college. Um, I don't know what his connections are to New Hampshire these days, but. I do like the idea of maybe him coming in as a bench coach, you know, some other role, uh, you know, a player that you can, or, you know, a coach that you can have around if you really do feel that highly about him. Tampa Bay Rays have a, a very successful history of being a, you know, a development organization for everyone else in Major League Baseball. So I like the idea of a guy yeah, coming I'm from fine there, with him you know, as, having him in the fold. I'm fine with, I've, I'm fine with him as a bench guy, just not as the, the manager. Yeah. Um, so I guess you know from there, I, you know, it sounds like we're both both happy to have quarterback. I know one one thing in terms of bringing the buzz back, the Red Sox, you know, wanting to be in the news. Uh, so this was certainly a controversial decision. You know, while most of Red Sox nation is probably happy with it, you know, they are focusing more on what he did in Boston than what he did in Houston. Uh, around the baseball world, there's plenty of people who think that Cora should have been banned for life or you know, at least received a stricter punishment, shouldn't be allowed to come back after just being suspended for a year, which was really just a 60-game season. So when did the Red Sox make this news? Uh, well, they announced it about you know four minutes after Joe Biden four took the seconds. lead in Pennsylvania. Yeah. yeah, like really the same time. Like, oh, all right, everyone's focused on the election right now. Let's uh, let's announce that Alex Cora yeah. is going to be our next manager it's, it's, and like <laughs> see if we can sweep this under the rug. Yeah, it's classic Red Sox to announce, make big announcements during more controversial topics going in the yeah, world. Or, yeah, I, I know last year they fired Dave Dombrowski during the Patriots banner ceremony in week one. Which was like, also week yeah, it's just like the, the kind of move that this team always makes. I, I find it hilarious. And, uh, yeah, not, you know, it's not, like. Not only do they need the most attention in Boston, they need the most attention con- worldwide. <laughs> yeah, well, that or they try to get the, the least amount of attention when they make these big moves and, you know, hope that nobody's paying attention. You know, kind of like the NFL's classic Friday news dumps and stuff. Uh, that's, you know, it certainly fits the billing of that. Obviously, you know, people are going to realize Alex Cora is a manager by now. They're going to see the other uh, ensuing posts, but uh, it, it is certainly funny the timing of that announcement. So, on a related note, AJ Hinch, who was the actual manager of the Astros, Alex Cora was a bench coach. Uh, he was someone who also lost his job after being suspended for the season. Astros owner Jim Crane fired him. Uh, you know, at the same time, you know, just before Alex Cora was fired by the Red Sox and he got another job, but not with Houston uh, and said he will be managing the Detroit Tigers. So uh, by all reports, AJ Hinch was not a fan of the sign ceiling. He was not uh, involved with it in terms of the organization and bringing it to Houston. Uh, but he obviously didn't, he didn't do, do a enough to stop, to stop it. it. It's because like, it, it was able to continue. It's it's very similar to the Sean Payton thing in New Orleans. I, I yes, mean, totally I different in terms of what they were doing, hurting players and l- sign stealing. But he he talked about he he definitely talked about it where he wasn't the head of it, but and he tried to even stop it at times, but he certainly didn't do uh, a good enough job of preventing it. 
No, and I think in this case, again, I think that a year-long suspension is fair punishment. So I don't have an issue with him being a manager don't. I don't either. It's like one-year suspension, and not even a whole year. Like you said, 60 games. 60 games, yeah. I I think it's totally fine, especially especially if you're a believer. You definitely have a stronger take on it that it was more of the players than the managers or coaches. Yeah, and not to say that you know none of these guys is their responsibility, but I I do think but that to it's, solely uh, it's blame more them the is to solely yep. blame the, them is wrong. Or to say they should be banned from baseball, like I I disagree with that. And to me, it's so I guess to go real historical, just a, a quick uh, you know pivot here. Um, so Earl Buck Weaver, he was I believe the second baseman for the nineteen nineteen Chicago White Sox, and of course the Black Sox. He was not one of the seven guys who actually participated in the, um, you know, throwing of games and fixing a World Series, but he was in the know and didn't do enough to stop his teammates. So he wait, who uh, did like the other seven? Who it did was Earl Earl Buck Weaver? Oh, I thought I, so. And not and not Joe Jackson. No, Earl Buck Weaver was not involved in it, but he knew, and because of that, he was banned from life for baseball. Mm-hmm. Joe Jackson was similar in the sense of, like, there was a question of, you know, how much did he really know what was going on? How much did he participate? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that a lot of the issue with Jackson was that he wasn't a very well-educated person, so there were questions about, okay, how much was he really in the know of this and whatnot? But I believe that it was confirmed that Jackson did actually accept money and that, you know, he was throwing the games i know everyone that points to you know his performance yeah. in that one hitting the in, only in home the sta- run but the stats were actually pretty good well, compared to the rest and that's of the, the one one thing you got to look into is it was an eight game series the white Sox won three of them so a lot of the the positive stats you saw from guys like jackson and uh you know some of the others who who threw games and you know participated in that uh they were playing well in the games they tried to win so um Regardless, you know, I, I don't think that Buck Weaver deserves to be banned for life. I don't think that AJ Hinch deserves to be banned for life. Um, what about yeah, Pete? Now, what about Pete Rose? <laughs> Pete Rose, he does deserve to be banned for life because the Black Sox set the scandal. If you gamble on the sport, if you work with gamblers, I mean, for Pete Rose to gamble on his own team's games, but you know, selectively choose which ones he actually gambled on, to me, yeah, he deserves to still be banned for life. And I know that's an unpopular take with a lot of people our age, but I'm going to stick with that. Uh, anyway, let's just talk about AJ Hinch. He goes to the Tigers, and I, I kind of question this move from a Hinch perspective. I think it's a great hire from a Tigers perspective. They're replacing Ron Garden hire, who he uh, he announced his retirement. He's someone who was noteworthy as the Minnesota Twins manager. You know, as not surprising. He was great with the Twins. Never won a, he never it, won a playoff game he, with the Twins. Was, the, he, the Twins haven't won a playoff he game was, in 30 years. He so. was a good manager regular season-wise with the Twins. But, yeah, it definitely yep. just went downhill for him. Yeah, <laughs> and, you know, he was kind of a good stopgap in Detroit. But, like, the Tigers have been atrocious the past few seasons. And I know they just had the number one overall pick in the draft. They got Spencer Turnbull coming in. But it's probably going to be a couple years before we see him make an impact at the major league level. Uh who else does Detroit have? <laughs> do you want to play that game? Like name the Detroit Tigers roster. Oh, see how many God. we can do. Miguel Cabrera. Miguel Cabrera. Uh, so Grayson Griner. You know, you know what sucks? All the players. All the players that are coming to coming to mind. They were on the Tigers eight <laughs> nine years ago. <laughs> Justin Verlander. Yeah, Polanco. Tori yeah. Hunter. Placido Polanco. There you go. Prince yeah. Fielder. Oh, yeah. Man. Um. So they have a. Uh... So I, I kept messing around with his name. It's Michael Fulmer. 
because there's I, I Carson him. Fulmer is a pitcher for the Pirates. Yeah, I think Michael Fulmer was like a pretty highly regarded prospect. Um, this is is Alex Avila still? Or, or no, it's like oh, I, I don't, a catcher. I, I, I hope not. I don't know. I feel like no. I think I'm thinking of their GM. I feel like their GM's name is Avila. Yeah, I actually looked up their roster last night. It, not necessarily in a. I'm looking at way, it right like now. I don't know. It. I was like, I'm not going to remember any of these names. I'm looking at it right now. I only know Miguel Cabrera, and I've heard of the name Michael Fulmer, and <laughs> I don't know if, him. Um, I don't know anyone. Casey else. Mize. I think he was like the number one and number two pick a couple years ago. He uh, he's there now. And Matthew Boyd. He's a guy who the Tigers are probably going to trade at this point because he doesn't really fit their timeline of. Who knows when they'll be a contender again? I mean, they, they they really were loaded seven years ago. Remember when they were in the ALCS first Boston? They had, was a GM. they had yeah. yeah they had Verlander, Scherzer, uh, Porcello. <laughs> he was there, right? And yeah, Anibal Sanchez. Yeah. That's a loaded rotation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it was uh, how the mighty have fallen, yeah. and I, I think that was kind of the fear if uh, Dave Dombrowski stuck around in Boston, you know, why they got rid of him. Uh, but yeah, yeah. I mean, D- Detroit. It feels like a tall task. I think AJ Hinch is only forty-five, so forty-six. You know, not I just, look, I just forty-six. Yeah, so you know, he's he's still young. He's someone who uh, you know certainly has a lot of baseball left ahead of him. You know, he's going to be participating in a rebuild. I'm sure that the Tigers will need to uh, you know give him at least a few years before they can really judge him. But we saw how much success he had in Houston. That was an organization that was horrendous for a few years when they did their own version of uh, you know tanking and trusting the process that we saw popularized in the nba and uh, obviously it led to a world series marred with controversy but still you know aj hinch won a world series so i think it's a really solid tiger for hire for the detroit tigers and uh you know that that being said i do think that there is a team that would have made a lot more sense for hinch and really you know for that team as uh, compared to who they did hire and that is the chicago white Sox. Who <laughs> decided oh to hire Jeez. Tony Larusa? So Tony Larusa is arguably, you know, in the discussion. You know, maybe one of the ten greatest managers ever. I mean, you just look at his accomplishments. He's, I think, he's the fourth winningest of all time. He's been doing this business. He was a White Sox manager from 1979 to 1986. So he's been doing this for a while. Did have a nine-year gap. Hasn't managed since he won the World Series with the Cardinals in 2011. I believe that was his third World Series win. Two with the Cardinals, one with the A's. He also led the A's to World Series appearances in 88 and 90 with their uh, you know, earthquake win in 89. And then the, the Cardinals lost in 04, won in 06 and 11. So he's a very accomplished manager. And I don't doubt that he can still kind of do this thing in Major League Baseball. Uh, I question how long he'll be able to. I'm not, I'm not questioning his past success. With, especially in St. Louis, uh, making the World Series in 04, 06, and 11, like you said, and winning in 06 and in 2011. But now <laughs> he's been he's been away from the game in terms of manager. He's been away. He's from a the, manager, yeah. Yeah, in terms of as being a manager, he's been away from the game for ten years. And uh, the seventy six. The, the White Sox are an up and coming team, and they're. What? They're, yeah, they're an up and coming team, but they decide to hire a seventy, almost eighty year old Tony Larusa. I don't know how that makes any sense. What's no, that? and I, so I I've been trying to come up with some uh, comparisons in just to other sports. I know a lot of our listeners are probably bigger NFL and NBA fans. They're sports that we talk about more often for a reason. Um, so these are kind of loose ones. I'd like to hear. So let's start with the NFL. So um, one, so it's kind of like I, I can't come up with a perfect 
answer right. here. So right. I kind of have two that are combined. Um, so one of them would be if the Cowboys fired Jason Garrett and uh, replaced him with Bill Parcells, who <laughs> former Cowboys coach, someone who hadn't been in the game for a long time, already in the Hall of Fame, just like I, Tony La Russa is. That's a that's a good comparison. Probably yeah. someone a, who a, could still do his a thing, good, but like a for good how coach. Long? But but it's he, if he's that old, I don't know how that exactly works yeah and um i guess the other thing would be if the dolphins were to make the playoffs this season as like the six or the seven seed and they fire brian flores and hire bill parcells which is you know the, the white Sox made the playoffs this year and uh they fired rick renteria who you know do kind of have to feel for him because he was uh, the cubs manager during their rebuilding years he was let go after 2014 joe madden comes in they win 97 games the next year they win the world series now in chicago and the south side you know where he ended up going with the white Sox, you're looking kind of at a similar uh trajectory potentially if you know tony russa is able to lead this team to a world series title in a couple years um so that being said another Another thing oh. to mention about Tony Larusa. Yeah, I don't know if you heard about this, but literally today. Yeah, I, I of course. Well, I I do want to get into that. Oh, um, okay. My so bad. I my guess apologies. one thing. So the NBA comparison. This is another one that's it has its flaws. But uh, the Pelicans firing um, Alvin Gentry. You know they have their young roster with Zion and uh, you know Brandon Ingram and Lonzo Ball. Those guys and hiring Phil Jackson as head coach. Uh, that yeah. that that's another one where you know it's no, kind of similar in the are, sense. No, of, those are two. Those are two good comparisons. Yeah, two yeah, guys who have had plenty of success as coaches. They've and, been away from the game for it, a long time. You yeah, know, they're they're well past their prime. Uh, already in the Hall of Fame. Uh, yeah, so those those are loose comparisons, but you know, just to kind of get an idea, you know, what we're talking about here with the White Sox hiring Larusa. Um, so okay, uh, before we get into that, um, I do want to say that the White Sox general manager Rick Hahn said that. He, when he fired Renteria, he said he wanted to bring in a manager who has recent World Series experience. Naturally, AJ Hinch and Alex Cora will come up. Uh, you know, they want to going in different directions with those two who, uh, you know, Hinch was hired by Detroit and Cora by Boston after the White Sox announced La Russa hiring. You could have looked at, say, Bruce Bochy or Ned Yost. They've both won World Series in the last five, six years. They were both we retired. Kansas City and Kansas City San Francisco. San Francisco. Right? They were both yeah. retired, but they both last managed in 2019. They only took a year off. And if you're like, all right, yeah, you convince Bochi or Yost to come out of retirement those, and try to lead those, this team. Those make more sense. Even even um, without looking it up before Googling it, I'm sure they're old, but I'm, I don't think they're Tony LaRusso old. No, I can't I imagine that either of them are you know older than 70. Um, I think that, they those two hires would have also been like maybe a little questionable like okay maybe the white Sox could have gone younger here like we said hinch makes a lot of sense but they they want to come with la Russa, and i, I don't think la Russa fits han's description uh and there are a lot of reports coming out that the reason why la Russa was hired is because he's good friends with owner jerry reinsdorf who really pushed for this hiring and uh, that's just ridiculous to me that you know, the, this White Sox team that seems really promising. They just made the playoffs this year, you know, took advantage of that expanded postseason. A lot of young stars like Tim Tim Anderson and Eloy Jimenez uh, that they could Yohan, potentially. Yoman Kata. Yeah, I mean, they, they brought in uh, Yasmani Grandal in free agency. They also signed um, Dallas Keuchel. They, they have a really talented Tim Anderson, roster. I'm, I'm, yep. I'm, yeah. 
yeah, I mean, th- this is a team that you absolutely think can continue uh, this this forward trajectory and find themselves as actual World Series contenders in a you know in just a matter of years. Uh, but for them to hire a guy because the owner is friends with him, it, it's just a ridiculous hiring. Yeah, and I, you I know, Jerry Reinsdorf. If you watch The Last Dance, you're probably familiar with him. He's also the owner of the Bulls. Uh, so, you know, this probably shouldn't be too surprising that he would sabotage potentially his own team. And then, of course, the big news that you were alluding to is uh, it, it recently came out that Tony Arusa uh, was charged with a DUI. Uh, back in February, uh, I think he was just recently charged with it. Uh, he never actually submitted to um, a, a breathalyzer or a blood test at the time, but uh, this was news that the White Sox were apparently aware of. <laughs> it came out, or like they knew the day before they hired him about this, and it's a second DUI he's had too. Like that's so dumb. It's just it just makes it even worse. And like I, I I'm not a fan of. Uh, you know, people who drink and drive. I assume that most people would agree with that. That you're I mean, Carlos Belt- someone's life Carl- in danger. Car- Carlos Beltran was a manager of the Mets for a week, but he got or he left. They parted ways because of sign stealing. <laughs> but so you're yeah. gonna keep Tony Larusa because he, even though he drank and drive. <laughs> you know, all this news is coming out. Like I, I put on notifications for Jeff Passan just in case we'd have some breaking news while talking about this, that you know, the White Sox are, are not actually going forward with LaRusso as manager. Uh, but I mean, the fact that they hired him even after knowing this, I don't just know it that it's going to, I don't know it's going to make anything change. And uh, here's another thing to you know talk about who we're talking about here with Tony Russa. So Jeff Passan tweeted this out earlier today. ESPN obtained the full arrest report for Chicago White Sox manager Tony LaRusso's DUI charge. Do you see my ring? LaRusso said to the arresting officer, I'm a Hall of Famer baseball person. I'm Th- legit. What- I'm a Hall of Famer brother. I, I-, I was reading that as you, were- <laughs> as you were talking just a minute ago. Yeah. Oh, it's... <laughs> It's just incredible. And like, I was ready to rip this hiring before any of this came out. And it just makes it so much worse. And, uh, you know, one thing we haven't even talked about with Larusa, he has kind of been vocal about anti kneeling during the anthem and, you know, oh, all God. the social dust justice stuff, something that the White Sox players did a lot of. Tim Anderson, arguably their best player, very voice, uh, you know, boisterous about it. Also, he's been anti-bat flip. Tim Anderson is one of the kings of bat flips in baseball. Like this, it so just feels like no... a horrifying hire for so many reasons. So he stands for no fun and division between uh, races and dr- drinking and driving. And I don't know. He's seventy-six years old. Like who knows? And, 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 and is he a big old. analytics guy? Like he's, he's seventy-six years old and he looks older. <laughs> yeah, I mean it. It just yeah, and that's another thing. It's it's definitely a data driven league now. And what Tony Larusa is a really analytical guy. Yeah, I I can't imagine. I can't that. imagine. I think it's. I think this is going to go horribly. Uh, we'll see. You know, I don't even know if he's going to be their manager with all this news coming out, and it's it's probably a big upset if he is. So. All right, uh, you know that that's enough enough baseball talk for now. If you know if I do get any any notifications here, we can come back to it. But uh, let's move on and let's talk about the Masters, which they normally happen in April, 
the 84th edition will be happening this weekend in November because uh, they were postponed due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Obviously, a lot of sporting events have been changed throughout the year. We had the Stanley Cup finals in September, the NBA finals in October, and the Masters in November. So uh, this uh, edition is going to be a little strange not having fans. And, you know, of course, some of the, the beauty of the course, it's not going to look the same in the fall like it does in early spring. Uh, that being said, overall, like how excited are you for this tournament to be played this weekend? I'm still pretty excited about it, even if it, the buzz is not as good with fans there. Uh, just the fact that the Masters is still happening is definitely a, a big success. They didn't straight up cancel it. And they like the NHL and like the NBA, they went on with their plans, just postponed it and we're having the Masters in November during football season, and I can tell you I'm going to have a really unproductive weekend watching football yeah. and golf, yeah. and then the Patriots play on Sunday night after I'm sure the Masters will be over by then, so yeah. I'm going to have a really, really unproductive weekend, but regardless, it's definitely going to, I'm definitely excited for it still. Uh, I'm really interested to see wh- how the course is going to be laid out with, given that's being played in November, and I don't... It's, it's not super cold ten- temperatures by any means, but it is going to be super uh, soggy out and raining a-, a ton. And another thing to watch out is, or another thing I'm going to be looking at is how the younger uh, elite players who are de- debuting for the first time uh, at Augusta, how they're going to perform because uh, the course history at Augusta is definitely the most important of any major because they play the same course every season. Uh, but these newer elite players like Morikawa and Wolf, they've been having a lot of success in the majors so far. And I think a lot Bryson of that Bryson DeChambeau. And Bryson DeChambeau, yeah. He and just won the U.S. Open, Colin Morikawa in the PGA. Yeah. Right. And I think they're really benefiting from no fans because those are guys that don't have as much major experience like guys like D- Dustin Johnson or Rory McIlroy and they're taking advantage of the fact that there are no fans there and there's you don't have that sense of pressure with the fans being there. I mean, yes, it's still there's still a lot of pressure of winning a major, but at the same time, it kind of feels like you're just going out for a normal tea time or of golfing when there are no when there's no one there. Uh, so I'm definitely interested to see that in many other storylines with with Bryson and Tiger and many other players that we'll talk about. Yeah, I mean, speaking of no fans and Bryson DeChambeau, how do you feel about him? Because I'm I'm a Brooks Kepka fan, and I, I like that rivalry, and because of that, I, I, I do not I, like DeChambeau. So, uh, I like I actually am a big fan of both of them. I really? I love I I love that Brooks is just a super cocky guy yep. that says, "Yeah, half the field sucks, and, and there's only ten guys that have a real shot, and I'm one of them." And I, when when you have as much major success as Brooks Kepka does, I you could be as cocky as you want. I don't care. I, if you're if you're Steph Curry, Mahomes, Brady, Kevka, whatever. If, if you have so much success in your sport, as much as he does and others, you can be as cocky as you want. I don't care. And then when it comes to Bryson, I just everyone hates him except me, or except me and other, and I'm sure other fans as well. But I'm, I just love how much work he puts into his game. He, no one has taken more advantage of the COVID break than he did, putting on all that muscle and is very analytical with the game of golf. And he even talked about after he won the U.S. Open that that I want to, I don't not change maybe not change the game is the right word, but I want to be 
a real difference maker in the game. And I, I, I don't know. I kind of respect. I have a lot of respect for for Bryson and how much work he puts into his game, especially driving the ball off off the tee. He, no one is better off the tee than him, given the amount of distance he's been able to gain from the break and how much muscle he's put on. Yeah, he definitely put on a lot of muscle, and you know that's that's certainly seeing the effect can, on his drives. I can totally see why people hate him, though. For yeah, the record, he he said he's going to be using um, a forty-eight inch driver, which is the longest you can use uh, in on the PGA Tour. And I know that he's a lot of books are listing him as a favorite, and his his driving is going to be a huge part of that. Um, so I I do think that you know he he's certainly a name to watch. Um, Justin Johnson and John Rahm, number one and number two in the world, they'll certainly be up there. Uh, did you see John Rahm's hole in one on the practice course today? That, that was that was, that was very incredible. It was very impressive. Bouncing it on the water. What what hole is that? Was 16. that sixteen? Okay, is that Amen Corner? Is that sixteen? No, Amen Corner. Fifteen. Amen Corner is uh, eleven through eleven, twelve, and thirteen. Oh, that's multiple. Okay, yeah, I know that they have uh, names of all the holes. I didn't look too much into them. I feel like I should know that. Um, so. Regardless, though, so John Rom, his uh, his shot, I I thought that was so cool, but also like kind of sad listening to it, and it's just like chirping in the background, just silent basically because there's no fans there. Because even though it's a practice round, there are fans that do show up and pay oh, yeah. money there to so watch many these practice who, rounds. You got the Masters for the entire week, and you go, and you yeah. don't have that this year, and it's kind of like wow, you like hit this great shot, and they captured it on film, which is cool. But you just have, you know, him and like his caddy and like his swing coach are over there celebrating and yeah. all this stuff. But it's, and you know, there's no one there to observe it and just go wild when that happens, which you knew would know would be the reaction if there were a ton of fans in the crowd. Right. Um, so, in terms of uh, predictions, do you have anyone in mind that you think will win? So, I hate that Bryson won the U.S. Open. Because I was yeah. gonna save him as my master's pick. Okay. I bet him at I bet him at forty to one back in February, and now he's the favorite. So I'm really hoping that that hits now. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's yeah. Wow. I, Way ahead I, of the game. Yeah. I'm still gonna pick Bryson. <laughs> I know. I know he's the favorite, and uh, but and so he's def- there's definitely a lot of buzz around him. But I I still think Bryson's gonna win. And I know his course history isn't perfect, but I think he's a much different golfer now than he was uh, in past seasons. Uh, in terms of other guys to look at, uh, I don't want to say this guy's a sleeper by any means because he's one of the best golfers in the world, but I think there's a lot less pressure on Rory McIlroy. Yeah, he's a popular name. every single year he's a favorite, a co-favorite, and there's so much pressure on him in terms of completing the Grand Slam and when is he ever going to do it. And I think this year with all the media attention on Bryson and of course Tiger I think there's a little bit a little bit less pressure off Rory because of other guys getting more attention and I think that can only help him and I think he's someone that can certainly take advantage of the the crapping conditions out there given that he not not only does it help that he can uh, drive the ball as far as he does but also because it's going to be raining a lot the greens will be a little bit slower, and he's not the greatest putter. Um, so I, I think that can only help Rory. So I heard rain on Thursday. Are they saying it's going to rain all weekend? Yeah, I mean, the most rain will be on Thursday, but there should still be showers 
okay. little bit of showers. Yeah. There'll be thunder. And I think there's a trap, a near tropical storm going on right now. Yeah, I know but, there, there's definitely something going on in the Atlantic. So, you know, that I, could certainly affect Augusta. The, I'm sure there'll be delays, but I, I'd imagine that they'll still be able to finish by Sunday. Okay. Um, so, my guy I'm going with, he's uh, a bit of a long shot, 25 to 1 odds, but it's Patrick Cantley. Can't Did lay. I pronounce can't that? Lay. Can't lay. Okay. Yeah. I was like, ah, which one is it? Can't lay. Okay. Patrick can't lay. Uh, mm-hmm. So last year at the Masters, he actually eagled 15. That pulled him in a tide for first at minus 12. He went bogey, bogey, 16, 17. I remember Ended up that. finishing minus 10, tied for ninth. Uh, so it was, it was a tough finish when it looked like he was in a, a good spot. I think that he'll he'll learn from that. He, um, he won the Zozo Championship yep. his last time out a few weeks ago. So I think that he's in the right mindset this year. So uh, I'm, I'm taking him to win. No, it's a good pick. Yeah, he definitely, definitely could ride the momentum of his past win, most or most recent win, and I'm sure he wants. He's itching to get that green jacket after last year being in contention and not winning. So, do you think Tiger has any chance of winning? Winning? No, not really. I, I've my opinion on Tiger is closer to tw- his 2018 form than 2019. When in 2018 he finished. 32nd and he wasn't really playing that great at golf coming into the masters last year uh i mean i was still i'm not gonna pretend i thought or i knew he was gonna win i because i didn't i but i did like how he was playing before the masters so it didn't surprise me that he was in contention but i was still surprised that he won but his form as of right now hasn't been very good and he's barely played any golf since the since golf came back from the break and he hasn't been. I think his best finish is the PGA Championship, and he. I think he tied for like thirty seventh. Yeah, he like hasn't that. really done a whole lot this yeah. year. Yeah. Now, I mean, the only thing going from, of course, is the the amount of times he's played at Augusta, and yeah. he has more course knowledge than anyone. So that's really the only thing he's got going for him. Other than that, really not much. Yeah, best finish thirty seventh at PGA Championship back in August. And he hasn't. I think really he can finish it. top ten. I think it's yeah, gonna happen. I, I I'll say. I'll say I'll, I I think he makes the cut. I'll say top. I'll say thirty. I'll stick with that. Okay. Yeah. Um. Now, of course, you know, last year Tiger won the Masters, and uh, we did our best moments of the the decade bracket, and that wound up winning. So yeah. yeah so I mean, the right answer to that was probably the Cubs. I just he did beat the Cubs t- in the World I Series. Just, I'm just trying to remember. I was, yeah. That's what it was, and I. Yeah. I mean, I I know I just picked Tiger just because I'm a big golf fan, but also think about it. In the beginning of the decade, no, he couldn't have been more rock bottom. Oh yeah, yeah. And, I mean, it's 2009 November. And at when, the end of at the end of the decade, happened. he comes out on top. I yeah, I, I do think there is some recency bias in that, but you know, no, it, no, one hundred percent. Regardless, bias. it was fun doing that. Like we should yeah. we should come up with something. Uh, you know, like best sports moments of 2020. <laughs> but but like because 2020 has been such a terrible year they have to be like 2020 moments you know oh so so daniel jones is gonna be a runaway winner of <laughs> falling down on his I mean, 80 yard run what would the one seeds be like rudy gobert testing positive for COVID has to be the number one uh, that, overall oh, that's seed, number right? like, that's number one overall okay so maybe daniel jones isn't a runaway yeah <laughs> um the let's see i mean i'm trying to think of other stories oh uh tom brenneman's uh mid <laughs> mid apology home run call that's yeah, gonna that's be a one seed right and uh that, that's up there if, if um, we even if it's even allowed to be up yeah there. yeah the 
uh, I don't know, the, the, the Big Ten canceling football and then uncanceling football, but bringing it back way too late. And now the whole season's basically just in shambles with all the games being canceled. Like, you know, they're, they're, they're saving college football this year. Um, yeah, I don't know. It'd be a fun one. We got to look into that. We'll, we'll see. I, I, I like the idea already. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, so that'll wrap things up with our master's talk. Uh, just a few you know, kind of miscellaneous topics we want to discuss uh, before getting into the top five. Um, so relatively briefly, um, you know, obviously this was a big week uh, outside of sports in America with the, the presidential election. And, uh, you know, a lot of themes uh, of the week was, you know, the, the votes coming in pretty late and, uh, you know, dramatically shifting the results uh, well past Tuesday. So something that prompted President Trump to tweet in all caps, stop the count. And this is something that Twitter had a lot of fun with, uh, with a lot of, um, you know, stop the count and uh, captions on images of scores that uh, did not end up resulting in a, the way it looked like at the time. Uh, I saw a few that were kind of bad on my teams like the the pirates when they're up two nothing in game seven of the 92 nlcs before uh allowing three runs to the braves a sid bream game and uh the unc just this past year when they were up 84 to 82 against duke and trey jones hit the the, the tire uh you know late in that one to force overtime uh one of the funniest ones i saw though was uh from the 2018 men's division one basketball tournament and it was uh, stop the count, Virginia two, UMBC zero. <laughs> <laughs> That's of course, a good one. yeah, yeah. Which is funny because like uh, it was never that close the rest of the way. Um, and it did get me thinking, like, what is a moment where uh, you wish they had actually, you know, stopped the count before the game actually finished? What about the two thousand three ALCS in like eighth inning? With Pedro, yeah, right, yeah when you know, with, throwing a hundred, throwing a hundred plus pitches, and he comes back in the eighth inning. See, I was like thinking about that, and I feel like the Red Sox have won enough World Series that like there's not a whole lot of moments there that like would stand out as like the number one for me. Um, I was just so, thinking at the time. Yeah, no, I, absolutely, that would be one. Um, I think just you know from a, another Boston perspective, so the Celtics two of them uh, up 64 to 61 over the Lakers in game seven, 2010 with six 28 to play up 82 to 81 over the heat in game seven in 2012 with eight 48 to play. Those would both been cool. If the Celtics could have, you know, won the finals or advanced to the finals that year, uh, especially because, uh, you know, the Lakers and uh, LeBron ended up winning the title. Um, you know, I think if I was just looking at anything, you know, beyond my team, the uh, <laughs> the Falcons up twenty eight to three, that, or twenty eight to nine, gotta, or twenty eight to twelve, or twenty eight to twenty, like that one's got to be number one. Yeah, those would definitely be up there. Um, this best Steelers one I could come up with, which I don't know if it's great, just because of how early in the game it was, but up six nothing over the Broncos in the the twenty eleven wild card round. Um, you know, the the Tim Tebow game. Uh, it would have oh. been nice. Yeah, it would have been nice if that that didn't happen. You know, I don't know how far that Steelers team would have really gone in the postseason, but you know, even just winning that one and not losing horrifically to Tim Tebow would have been nice. I remember in that moment, I remember when Tim Tebow threw that touchdown to Demarius Thomas, I, I, and everyone was celebrating. I'm like, why? What's what's going on? Like, oh, the game's over. <laughs> the yeah, game's already over. There's no the Steelers don't get another shot. At, I, mm-hmm. I remember thinking. 
I, I remember I was confused by the overtime rules in the moment. Yeah, well, because that was the first playoff overtime where it was like if the Broncos only kicked a field goal, the Steelers would have had a chance to tie it. Right. So, mm-hmm. but yeah, um, that that was a tough one. I think you know from from uh, your perspective, Patriots had the lead in two Super Bowls over the Giants in the fourth quarter, uh, pretty yeah. late in the game. And then you know, we had talked about 30, this before. The, they they also had the thirty three to thirty two lead over the Eagles. They did, yeah. <laughs> they you know all three of those Super Bowls, and then uh, you know the Bruins up two to one in Game Six of the that one, twenty thirteen Stanley Cup that, Finals. Th- yeah, that one's by far the worst of, of in terms of the Bruins, at least. I, I, especially, I remember we were watching that game together with several other people, and I was yeah. I'll admit, <laughs> I was probably one of the only hardcore, I don't want to say the only one, but one of the only one, only hardcore I, I would Bruins fans. I say so. And I was really, really pissed compared to everyone else there. <laughs> and yeah. I just wanted to die after, after that moment. <laughs> I literally drove around for two hours around, <laughs> around yeah. uh, the neighbor, not neighborhood, but around Nashua for so yeah. long just because I was so mad. That's yeah, no, that's that was definitely a, a tough one to swallow for Bruins fans. Um, okay, so let's move on. Uh, we do have two tragic deaths that uh, we think are worth talking about. You know, first one. Let's start off with Jeopardy host Alex Trebek, who passed away at 80 years old. Uh, he'd been battling pancreatic cancer, which you know, I think at, at this point most of us knew that it was kind of a matter of time, but it's still felt like it was off, still shocking caught us off guard moment. yeah because he'd just been on tv like that week yeah. <laughs> it had only been a couple weeks since uh he had last you know filmed a jeopardy episode uh and yeah and i think they're still going to film the rest of his because i don't think they're still gonna air the exact day but i think they're gonna air the rest of his appearances yeah i think jeopardy like their their executive producer came out and they said 35 episodes yep 35 so yeah mm-hmm. i mean he's still gonna be on our tv for a couple months and it, that feels like it's gonna be eerie um so i I know that you said you know, at the beginning of the year, one of your uh, answers to five questions, your favorite game show is specifically Sports Jeopardy. Um, you know, I don't know how often you watch Jeopardy. Uh, I personally, I know, like, I not I, all I, the time, but I suck at Jeopardy. Regular, not Sports Jeopardy. I'm regular Jeopardy. Yeah. I suck at Jeopardy. <laughs> I'm, I pray, even though I was not good at, I. I, I did love the sports categories and entertainment categories because there would be times where that I could was... just sweep the sweep that row and yeah. everything else when it was 16th century poetry or or astrophysics I knew I would get smoked in that category I but I, I did enjoy watching Jeopardy and I I even enjoyed watching it with with friends or family and try to compete on the in the living room. Yeah, and it's it's not necessarily a show that I would go to my way to watch by myself, but you know, if someone else had it on, I was I was always there, always doing my best to come up with answers and very rarely able to beat, you know, whoever on the show buzzed in. Uh and Al Shrek, obviously, he'd been the host of it since nineteen eighty four. He's the only guy that any of us had known. And I think it's pretty incredible that uh, you know, someone of his stature who he's been around for a long time and you're only hearing positive things about him. Everyone is in mourning, especially like this week when, you know, everyone is fighting over everything that, you know, Alex Trebek is kind of able to break those lines. Uh, you know, he's someone who uh, no one has a bad thing to say about because he's just an all around great guy. He's someone who's a phenomenal host. I mean, I think it's fair to say like the best game show host, you know, is 
I don't well, know that. Steve Harvey on Family Feud. Come on. You know, now. Steve Harvey, <laughs> I love Family Feud. Uh, you know, I, I think that there have been a lot of great hosts of that show. I, and Steve Harvey's a fun guy, but I don't think he touches Alex Trebek. Like, uh, I, I was... I was I was semi-joking, but yeah. I, I do love Steve Harvey. Yeah, and I and <laughs> but, it's but no, I I agree that yeah, he's definitely the best uh, yeah, game show certain... host in my opinion. Maybe maybe as well as Regis Philbin. I don't know. On who's another guy who passed away this year? All right. So, yeah, I yeah, know 2020 has been a tough year. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of key people, uh, you know, losing. Uh, you know, their their battles with various you know diseases like cancer or even like some some people, you know, of course, you know, 200 some thousand Americans, millions around the world to COVID. Um, but yeah, this is uh, is there, certainly a tough one uh, for a lot of people as, you know, we, we just <laughs> the, the horrors of, of 2020 continue. And uh, just today, uh, you know, more sports one and more more topical one for us as uh, Celtics fans is uh, Tommy Heinsohn. Which uh, that that definitely caught me off guard. He was 86 years old, uh, the longtime Celtic broadcaster, former Celtic player and coach, Hall of Famer, and uh, that's another loss that at least in the, the Boston sports community is a is a tough one to swallow. Yeah, I, I'm not gonna say Tommy Heinsohn was the greatest Celtics player ever or anything, but in terms of a in terms of a whole as a player, coach, broadcaster, I mean, does anyone uh, Stanford as is anyone uh, as good of a face of the Celtics as Tommy Heinsohn? I don't think can so. Anyone, can anyone else make a case for that? I don't think uh, better than him. Heinsohn, he had six decades of being associated, and I agree, he's not the best. I mean, he's someone who like he was really good. He's a Hall of Famer for a reason. You know, yeah. Bob Cousy today was saying that you know, he was just overshadowed by guys like him and Bill Russell and John Havlicek, and he's someone who I think his accomplishments are kind of. You know, at least as a player, are played down in a sense, or you know, he's underrated because of all the great guys that were a part of those 1960 Celtics teams. And as a head coach, he was great. He led the team to two more titles in '74 and '76. So, you know, he's someone who was very involved with the organization well before the broadcasting days. But of course, him and Mike Gorman was a, a phenomenal duo together for yeah, I, I believe I, the, 40 years. The, the duo of Mike Gorman and Tommy Einsen was awesome. Is- was awesome really fun to watch and hear listening to them do celtics games mm-hmm. i know and it's i didn't really get a whole lot of that in the past i don't know seven or eight years ever since i i moved away from new england and didn't have combat that, sports not on tv that, but that and also because of his health issues they've been they brought in scal uh to do yeah there have been well. other guys that have been involved um but I mean, it just you know, going back to what you said about the face of the Celtics, the Celtics official Twitter account tweeted out earlier: Tommy is the embodiment of Celtic pride. He is a spirit of the entire organization. He is a single most devoted figure in franchise history, and he will always be. So, yeah, I mean that. So right, even the team agrees. <laughs> yes, yeah, I and mean, absolutely, you know, he's someone who he was absolutely the most passionate <laughs> broadcaster, you know, color commentator I've I've ever. You know, witness. I, uh, I, I, anytime the Celtics were getting screwed by the refs, <laughs> he would he would go at it on the broadcast, and I'd love it. Yeah, or even if the refs were just making great calls that went against the yeah, Celtics. Yeah, even, <laughs> even if they were just normal fouls, yeah. he'd, still, he'd still be agitated by it. Yeah, and of course, you know, awarding Tommy points and, uh, you know, the Tommy Award oh, I, for I guys love, who I hustled. Love, yeah. I love the Tommy, Tommy points or Tommy Awards, and, yeah. and especially when the Celtics were not the best team yet when they it was just Pearson and 11 Jags on their team Antoine Walker yeah and 
Yeah. And and Tommy Tommy would give the Tommy point to just someone super random outside of Paul Pearson. Yeah. It go to like Tony Petit or Watson McCarty, and I I would I love I love Tommy as a broadcast color guy and love the Tommy award stuff and and yeah total face of the Celtics. Yeah, definitely a Celtics legend. He'll he'll be missed. He'll, he'll be a, a tough one. You know, like Jeopardy is going to be tough watching it without uh, bo- Alex both Trebek, of those. Both but of those yeah, are... Celtics. You know, just as tough. I, you know, I, not I love Hansen. I love Scal more than anybody, but I, I put him as the number one Brian on my yeah, <laughs> list for a reason. But uh, yeah, not having Tommy there uh, is really going to really going to stink, and it's a huge loss. Yep. Yep. So yeah, two two. Uh, important lives that you know lost in the, the past few days so uh you know certainly give our condolences to the Trebek and the Heinsen family and uh we just hope that we can continue to get through 2020 and not lose too many more awesome people all right so real quickly let's kind of get on a happier note before we get into the top five and uh sounds like there's gonna be a wedding crasher sequel vince vaughn going saying that it's you know it's in the development stages but you know him owen wilson and uh who's the director of wedding crashers do you know off the top of your head not the top of my head um yeah i'm looking it up now but uh they all came together and it's uh david dobkin they they all i guess have an idea that they like they think it's good and it sounds like they're gonna try to go through with it and uh it's been 15 years since the original i don't know when it'll be out but that's exciting and yeah i (laughs) I know i obviously I'm a huge fan of Wayne Crashers, one of my favorite movies, and one of my favorite Owen Wilson, Vince Vaughn movies. And part of me, lo- part of me loves the idea just because I love the movie, but at the same time, doesn't the sequel always suck? <laughs> yeah, I don't really know what to expect out of a Wedding Crasher sequel. Do you, do you know point. what I mean, though? Whenever there's a yeah. great movie and it has a sequel and it just... It, it's never more as times good as the original. More times than not, it kind of, it's, it's not as good as the first one. Uh, especially if it comes of, out like 17 uh, years yeah, later or so yeah, out, outside of maybe 21 and 22 jump street i can't think of uh a comedy sequel that uh matched the first one i i, I can't think of anything it, they have all been worse than typically it's worse than the first one yeah i mean so, I, I, Barmy I, I is can't, excited. nothing's immediately coming to mind Barmy is excited and but part of me is also, what if this movie sucks? <laughs> then I want, then I don't want that in my mind. Yeah, no, I, I mean, we'll see. I, I definitely plan on seeing this whenever it comes out. You know, if it comes out, uh, and really, so the, one of the bigger reasons why I brought this up is because you know, Wedding Crashers has been a pretty, uh, you know, con- contentious topic between you and I. <laughs> uh, you know, going back to, I believe, it was last February, is Valentine's Day, when you put Wedding Crashers as your number two romantic comedy, and I was pretty vehement about it not being a romantic comedy. And uh, I don't know why, but I before this news even came out, I think uh, maybe this inspired me, but uh, I definitely looked up the trailer on YouTube and I watched it and I was like, huh, you know, I guess it's been a while since I saw this movie because this definitely feels like a romantic comedy to me. <laughs> and uh, on Friday night, so it was on TBS. Uh, I don't know if it, you know, what happened. I, I turned it on right at 11. Uh, when I saw it pop up on uh, YouTube TV, but there weren't any commercials, so I don't know if it's some kind of recording. I got lucky or whatever, uh, but I watched it, and I I got to admit I was wrong. It absolutely is a romantic comedy. Like I don't know what I was thinking with it, just like the whole concept of what they were doing. I 
I remembered more so, um, you know, Vince Vaughn and his uh, relationship with Isla Fisher than I did Owen Wilson's with um, yeah, the, Rachel, um, Rachel McAdams. Ra- Rachel McAdams, yeah. That, yeah. That's and, definitely the more romantic part of the... But, I mean, even then, like, <laughs> the you know, Vince Vaughn and Isla Fisher's characters get married in the end. So, yeah. like, it's, a, it's absolutely a romantic comedy. It's not a sex comedy. It's not, like, some Seth Rogen movie. Like, this is totally different. And, like, we've talked about this enough times on the show that I'm shocked that nobody has talked about it to me and be like, <laughs> yeah, like... You sure about that? Like, I don't know why you're like on the, that hill that it's not a romantic if, if, comedy. If you, like, yeah, if you Google best romantic comedies, it's it on pops the list. Up. It pops yeah. up on every list. And it does say romance I, slash comedy. I, so. so, and you you kept saying it wasn't. So, and part of me wanted to argue, it, but at the same time, I'm thinking, I, there's nothing else for me to argue. Yeah, <laughs> like, no. Watch the I, movie I, again. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, and um, hey, I did, and uh, you know, I, I'll I'll admit I was wrong in that one. I I don't know why. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> I feel stupid, like honestly, like no, you know, maybe no, people will say no, like it's definitely not a romantic comedy. No, the, the, was right the whole time, but no, this makes me feel a lot better, honestly. Yeah, just yeah, just the fact so. they watched it again, like that that kind of yep. makes sense now that oh, he hasn't watched it in forever. He watches yeah. it and then realizes it is a romantic comedy, and great. Yep. <laughs> Case yep. closed. There you go. All right, so yeah, that's uh, you know one of the one of the few times I'll probably admit that I was wrong and you were right, but you know here we yeah, are. Yeah, I mean, mo- I mean, more times than not, I'm gonna be wrong. <laughs> Let's. I'm, I'll. I'll yeah. I've. I've come to that conclusion, but I was right about this one. You were. You were right. Oh about wow! This. I was right about a non-sports take. Great. Hey, you know what? We're a mostly sports podcast, not an exclusively sports podcast. So. And hey, you know, speaking of movies and talking about things other than sport, that's a good time to transition into our top five to round out the show. Um, So we'll be counting down, uh, you know, in honor of both, you know, Veterans Day, Armistice Day, whatever you want to call it, uh, our favorite allied war movies in today's top five. Not two, not three, not four. Top five, top five, top five. So I don't know if that's a, the best term to use, allies, because uh, I think that kind of brings out World War II references. But you know, it's World War One, so November eleventh, nineteen eighteen. That was the end. Uh, you know, when the armistice was signed, we celebrated the U.S. as Veterans Day. I think other parts of the world celebrate it just as Armistice Day, end of World War One. Uh, but our, we're gonna go through and you know count down our favorite war movies that are at least involving. You know, whether it's Americans or British, which I assume most of ours, it's one of those two. Um, And uh, our favorite war movies about them. So let's get into it. And uh, I will start off with my number five. And that is a bit of a troll answer, which is why it's number five. uh, Captain America Civil War. So... You know, I know last time uh, we did our, or not last time, but a couple episodes ago, we did our top five favorite, like, you know, spooky season, horror, Halloween movies. And I was like, yeah, I'm not a big horror movie fan. Well, uh, I'm also not a huge war movie fan, but I do feel like Captain America Civil War is close enough. You know, it has war in the title. I can throw it in here. Captain America itself, uh, he, he was a, a World War II uh, created super soldier so i i think that it it kind of works here um i've said in the past that i'm not necessarily a huge superhero movie fan or just superhero comics in general but i do love the avengers franchise and you know when they bring all the superheroes together and that's what happens in captain america civil war you have captain america on one side iron man on the other you know leading this struggle between whether or not and the superheroes should be regulated 
uh, by you know the government, the military or not. Uh, I, I think it's a, a really well done movie and it really kind of sets the tone for uh, the, the final two Avengers films. So uh, I, you know, I, I think it's a little, little bit of stretch putting it as my number five, which is why it's, it, you know, it's, it's at the bottom here, but uh, it's, it's definitely a worthwhile movie. And I'm sure that a lot of Marvel fans would, you know, agree that it's, it's a, uh, it's a pretty solid one. So. All right. So for my number five is uh, a movie called the great escape. And in this movie, uh, Imprisoned during World War II in a German POW camp, a group of Allied soldiers are intent on breaking out, not only to escape, but also to draw Nazi forces away from battle to search for fugitives. And I, if, this movie came out in the 60s, so it's not 1963. exactly... 1963. So it's not exactly a movie that has amazing special effects or anything, but in terms of an old movie, especially that took place in World War II, I... I really enjoyed it and got an 8.2 in IMDb. So uh, I'm sure many people would agree that it was a, a really good movie. And, uh, and yeah, I, and Steve McQueen also was very good in it as well. So great escape is my number five choice. All right. Um, I don't think I've ever seen a Steve McQueen movie, but I'll always remember um, playing like some, some like card game or board game or whatever it was when uh you know, one Christmas years ago, and uh, my my grandmother answered Steve McQueen to like who's like the hottest guy in Hollywood, and this was long after he was dead. So that's how I'll always associate him. I mean, good looking. I'll admit, good looking yeah, guy. Fifty yeah. years ago, it'd been a great answer, yeah. right? Yeah, yep, I agree. <laughs> All right, uh, number four, uh, I went with The Patriot which is a revolutionary war movie. Uh, they take a lot of creative liberties in this one. I know one of the knocks against it is that it's not really an accurate portrayal of the revolutionary war. Uh, there's one particularly brutal church burning scene that's like, yeah, this never happened in the actual war. I, I know I know it's scene you're talking about where they lock down people yep. in the church and they just burn it Laying down. on fire, yep. 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 Yeah. Pretty, pretty horrific. Did not happen at all. Uh, no documented evidence of that. Uh, that being said, I do think, you know, he's a controversial person, but I do think uh, Mel Gibson does a really great job in the lead role here. Uh, also, Keith Ledger is a, in it playing his son, Gabriel. Uh, one of my favorite scenes in the movie is when Gabriel gets uh, kidnapped, I guess, or, you know, taken, arrested, whatever you want to call it, by the uh, British Army. And, uh, you, know, you know, Benjamin uh mel gibson's character and two of his other sons go out in the woods and uh basically do an ambush and take out mm-hmm. most of the british soldiers it's a really cool scene um and it also stars uh, what's his name jason isaacs uh who you may be more familiar as as uh lucius malfoy in the harry potter malfoy's series. dad <laughs> yeah yeah he plays the uh the main british uh antagonist in this that one. guy was born to be a villain in a movie <laughs> oh yeah no he he does he does a great job with it um i don't think i've seen any of the other films that he's famous for but i wouldn't be surprised if he's a villain in a lot of those as well yeah i uh, I, I was i'm a fan of this choice i would as when i was picking mo- movies for the top five i i didn't have it in my Top five, but I had it as a very high choice that I uh, unfortunately left Number out. six. Yeah, I would say number right. six. If we yeah. did top six, I'd probably put it number six. Okay. Uh, yeah, so I'm... I'm a fan of this choice. Okay. So for my number four choice, I went with a movie called Pearl Harbor and stars Ben Affleck and Kate Beckinsale. 
And in this movie, this sweeping drama based on real historic historical events follows uh, boyhood friends uh, as they enter World War II as pilots. And in the movie, there's definitely a romantic uh, sort of drama going on with Kate Beckinsale's character between uh, Ben Affleck's character and uh, his best friend Danny in the movie, played by Josh Hartnett, and and it, there's a there's a romantic element to the movie that's really intriguing, but also World War II as well. Given that obviously movie called being called Pearl Harbor, it shows the events of Pearl Harbor on December seventh, nineteen forty one, and uh, it's a very good movie in my opinion. So I have that as number four. Yes, I, I've never seen it. Um... I was just looking up right now your top five romantic comedies to see if it made the list there. <laughs> yeah, um, unfortunately, a World War II <laughs> drama wouldn't exactly be in the romantic comedy no, list. No, I, I think I, I probably would have called that one out for sure, but I decided to double check. Um, I, I've heard couple, that wasn't there, a very highly uh Yeah, uh, so I will movie. admit, it is a little corny. Yeah. And I, I would rank it higher than 6-2, though. I think that's what it said on IMDb. I would rank it a little higher than that, but... I'll admit it. It was a little corny, but it, I still enjoyed it a lot. Okay, yeah, I was. I just point that out because I was surprised to see those ratings. I've, I've heard of the movie. I thought it was a you know relatively popular World War II romantic drama, but you know. I, I don't guess. know if it's because people don't like Ben Affleck. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. But okay, yeah, um, maybe I'll check it out myself and and see what I'd give it. Uh, anyway, so my number three is uh, even older than your number five. This is the movie from 1957, The Bridge on the River Kwai. Uh, this is also a World War II POW movie, uh, except this one is about British prisoners of war to the Japanese. And at the end of, like, the very end of college, like, basically when I graduated and, you know, at my early few months, uh, at least in the real world, uh, I spent a lot of time watching older films that are like widely regarded as some of the greatest ever made. And Bridge on the River Kwai was one of them. I think uh, in 1997, I want to say, the uh, American Film Institute counted down their top 100 movies ever. They ranked this number 13. And uh, I decided to check it out. And I really like it. I think that uh, it's a a very entertaining movie um you know given that it's a 50s uh world war ii i, I have what? i have seen it and it was it was it was good it, again another not another non movie in my top five but i i liked it and I, my favorite part is actually the ending oh the ending is it's it's insane very, like, like i don't want to get ver- into it but yeah you know I, I i think people you know should what, check it out you know exactly what i'm talking about yes that. oh absolutely it is it is a crazy ending um you know it's it, so basically so this movie you know it has I guess, uh, you know, the British prisoner of war, like the the highest command is um, Lieutenant Colonel Nicholson, who's played by Alec Guinness, who uh, you may be more familiar with as Obi-Wan Kenobi in the Star Wars uh, franchise. And then Colonel Saito uh, in Japan. So it's Seswe Hayakawa. Uh, I actually looked into him. He um, was one of the... uh, biggest he was one of the first male sex symbols in hollywood uh in like the 1910s and 20s um 1957 he's, he's definitely older in this one but you know i was, was kind of curious into his background and uh yeah so basically you know nicholson says that it's against the geneva code for uh his 
officers to need to do manual labor in this camp. Saito says, hey, I need this bridge built over the River Kwai or else I'm going to have to commit ritual suicide. So it's this big struggle between the two and, you know, one of them getting their way at times over the other. And then also you kind of get into like some of the, uh, you know, loyalty to what extent is the British helping out the Japanese do this, you know, betraying their country. This is an act of treason. Uh, there's definitely a lot of power struggles in that. And, you know, like you, you said, we alluded to it. It is a pretty, pretty crazy ending, which I think on its own is worth watching. Um, cinematography for a 1957 movie. It's it is beautiful. Uh, just the way that the they are able to portray, which you know, I think it takes place technically in Burma, uh, which is now Myanmar, but it was filmed in Ceylon, which is now Sri Lanka. Uh, really, really awesome images of you know the the jungle and you know whatever like the the landscape around with with the river, and uh, I think that it's uh, it's worth looking into you know just for that as well. Um, so yeah, Bridge on the River Kwai. It's an older one. Hopefully some of our oldie audience appreciates that as my number three. All right. So for my number three choice, I went with Hacksaw Ridge. And this movie came out 2016 and stars Andrew Garfield. And in this true story of Desmond T. Dawson, who won the Congressional Medal of Honor, despite refusing to bear arms during World War II because of religious beliefs, Doss was drafted and ostracized by fellow soldiers for his pacifist stance, but went to, on to re- earn respect and adoration for his bravery, selfish selfishness, or excuse me, selflessness, Jesus, and compassion after he risked his life without firing a shot to save 75 men in the Battle of Okinawa. And I actually watched this movie about one or two weeks ago, and I would highly recommend it. it Andrew Garfield was very good in the social network, the Facebook movie, and he was very good as Spider-Man, but I think this was his best role uh, in Hacksaw Ridge. And Vince Vaughn also stars in it, speaking of uh, uh, Vince Vaughn, as we were talking about wedding crashes. No, no, Hacksaw Ridge is not a romantic comedy. (laughs) I don't even need to check. Yeah, Uh, But there's also a romantic element to that movie as well. Um, But I I was just amazed by his, uh, his stance on or his beliefs on not uh, bearing arms and helping uh, helping the American side by uh, being a medic, but all and saving all all the men he saved uh, in the battle that they showed, and um, it, was, it was an incredible movie. So I put that as my number three choice. Yeah, I'd never heard of that one before, but that sounds like a, it a came pretty out interesting movie. Four years ago, and I think it was not—I don't think it won, but I, I think it was nominated for Best Picture. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I know most Best Picture nominations. I've—I've I've never heard of the movie, so that's not surprising. <laughs> um, all right, so my number two—it's uh, Inglorious Bastards, and I know this is one that you're not a fan of, not a big Quentin Tarantino guy. I wish we had been on because I know he is a big fan of Quentin Tarantino to back me up on this one, but I, I think this is an no, awesome I'm, movie. I'm, gl- I'm glad because it'd be two on one and I wouldn't <laughs> have much of an argument other than the fact that I hate this movie. That's it. Yeah, <laughs> so this is uh, the second time this movie has been featured in one of my top fives. Um, last year, Memorial Day weekend, we did our top five war heroes, and I think my number five was uh, Donnie Donowitz and Omar 
Connor Ulmer. You know, of course, Alda Rain, Brad Pitt's character, is like the main main guy in this. But uh, those two were the two who actually, you know, killed Adolf Hitler in this, uh, you know, alternative history, uh, you know, whatever you want to call it, where uh, you know Hitler has two assassination plots and they're actually carried out in this one. So. Uh, I, I think it's a, a great movie. Uh, you know, it, it has a lot of, uh, you know, dark side to it, but it, it certainly has its fair share of uh, comedic elements. And uh, yeah, I mean, I... I uh, most most I people would... did like it. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think it's minority. crazy that you I, don't. like. I I remember when I... I remember when this movie came out on, not, not in the theaters, but on Netflix. And I shared an, the account with my dad. And yeah. he's a big... He watches... He's seen a million war movies. He's a huge uh, fan of uh, World War II movies. And I decided to add Inglorious Bastards to the queue. And I said, hey, what about this movie? And he he hates Quentin Tarantino more than I do. Oh, yeah. And so so when I when he found out that I got the movie in the mail... He was. I was excited because it's a World War Two and it's a new movie that came. Oh, out this and... this like that throwback. Like you got a Netflix movie in the mail. Yeah, I got the Netflix <laughs> movie in the mail. Right, yeah, that's, throwback. Okay. <laughs> and when I got it, my dad was disappointed. And when we watched yeah. the movie, I found out why. <laughs> yeah. Huh. So, uh, it's, I, I was. I I really didn't like the movie. That's just me, though. All right. Well, that's okay. That's my number two. All right, and so for my number two, I went with a movie called 1917. This movie came out last year, uh, and it's a movie during World War One, and shows two British soldier, soldiers uh, who receive seemingly impossible orders. Uh, in a race against time, they must cross over into enemy territory to deliver a message that could potentially save 1,600 of their fellow comrades, including one of the soldiers' own brother, and... You're talking about cinematography for one of your top five choices. The cinematography mm-hmm. in this movie was top notch, as good as it gets, and I would recommend this movie even even more than Axel Ridge. And th- another movie that was nominated for Best Picture that did not win, and I don't remember. I don't remember what movie. I think it was Parasites. I've never yeah, seen Parasite it. Yeah, Parasite won up one. Um, so I'll admit, maybe I can't have a great take on it since I've never seen it, but I would. I think 1917 should have won i remember we were talking about oscars at one point last year yeah and no, it was this about, year or, or <laughs> whatever yeah crazy and to think this, it was this year yeah. yeah and i was i was i remember i mentioned that uh joker was the only one i've seen so i said i'd pick that and i wish i wish i saw 1917 and i think ford versus ferrari was another one both both another movie that was great but 1917 was amazing and i would recommend it yeah i haven't seen it but it it sounds like a really cool concept right it's all like looks like it's all one action shot that's that's what i was just about that was another thing i was about to bring up yeah it's it it's it feels like it's they really do it all in one shot the entire entire movie and i don't know how they do it but yeah i mean i think it's it's an illusion it's like one thing i think that's that's what i've read about it but it does it does seem like a you know something cool like to check out just for that reason um, it's also interesting. This is the only World War One movie on either of our countdowns, but this is uh, you know we're doing this in honor of uh, you know the hundred two year anniversary of World War One ending. So mm-hmm. you know, I, I do appreciate that we have this on the list. I'm sure that I would have found a way to include it in my top five if I had seen it, just based on you know what everyone has been saying about it. 
All right. So finally, uh, number one, we both have the same number one. Let's talk about it together. And that is Saving Private Ryan. And I, I, I think it's a phenomenal movie. Uh, I watched it for the first time, I think freshman year of high school. You know, it definitely has a pretty uh, gruesome opening scene to show 14 year olds. But, you know, the, getting the, past that, the, the film f- itself is pretty amazing. Their first 20 minutes are so gory that even World War II soldiers, a lot of them had to leave the theater. Yeah, they couldn't or, handle or it. Or the movie because they really how, it was how too, accurate it was. It was too, yeah, exactly. Because of how accurate the first uh, 20 you know, minutes. The storming of, the of Normandy is, you know, the scene. So, yep. Uh, yep. Yeah, the, this movie. So I put 1917 as my number two choice. It doesn't even come close to saving Private Ryan. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's the best war movie ever made. And even though it was made in, or I think it was 1998. Yeah. Yeah. It feels like it was made just a couple of years ago of how realistic it seems. And uh, Tom Hanks, one of my favorite actors, if not my favorite actor, did an amazing job in that movie. And as well as Matt Damon and others. And yeah, we both took his character, Captain John Miller in our top five war heroes. Yeah. Countdown. I love the scene where he admits what his job was uh, back home. And if you remember that scene where they start fighting over uh, taking over a bunker that caused the life of one of their, one of the soldiers. And he talked about how like, Oh, I'm an, I'm a school teacher and I mm-hmm. coached the baseball team in the springtime and was really open about his, his life at, at home. And so he did an amazing job in that movie movie and the amazing battle scenes and the only thing i could bad thing i could say about saving private ryan is every time i watch a war movie i I think i think to myself that was good wasn't wasn't saving private ryan (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's just nothing else compares to it yeah yeah no i i I feel that um i i definitely you know have it like there was no doubt in my mind that it was going to be my number one the rest of them when i when i filled out the list i immediately put that number one and then then I had to think about the rest yep. of the list because I yep. already knew what I was going to put at number one. Yeah, I actually, I mean, the, so the last time I saw it, I, I went up walking in halfway through, but it was, I think, so last September, um, I I went to a family reunion and I, I stopped halfway in uh, my cousin's in Baltimore and uh, her roommates were watching it. I guess, you know, one of the guys loves the movie. His girlfriend had never seen it and just, you know, walked in. It's like, yeah, just casually watching Save It Private Ryan. It's like, all right, you know, I guess I'll just chill here and watch this with you guys. You know, we'll, we'll have some small talk during the commercial breaks, but uh, no no complaints here. This is a good way to, to spend my night. So, uh, yeah, it was really just the ending at that point, which, uh, you know, it's it's a, a key part of the movie. Uh, but yeah, I'm, a, I'm definitely a big fan of Saving Private Ryan. And when I came up with this idea, I knew immediately this would be both of our number ones. Couldn't agree more. All right. So, uh, you know, that's going to wrap up this episode of He's Done It. And, uh, you know, we had a lot of different topics in this one. I have a feeling that our next episode is going to be uh, much more NFL centric. I think we're going to have a special guest on it. I'm not going to give away too much just because I'm not 100% sure it's going to happen, but I, I feel pretty good about it. Uh, so we'll we'll look forward to that. My only request during that time is not to talk about our favorite Thanksgiving foods because I'll bring <laughs> up brownies again. We'll need a top five, uh, but I don't know that it's going to be. You know, we about can't top, do the same thing. We can do not top five. But, yeah, no. <laughs> um, all right. So, uh, you know, for, for Brian Wells, I'm Corey Novotny. Thanks, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>